This is our third message in our First Things series. Uh, We are looking at the message to the Corinthians, and what we're doing to unpack both First and Second Corinthians is we are breaking the message to that church down into seven different installments of, of themes that Paul uses to teach this church. He as he does in almost every single one, if not all of his letters, at some point, to some extent, explains the gospel. Uh, We've looked at two different passages at the beginning and end of 1 Corinthians. And for today, to finish out our series, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul shares, I think, one of the most moving and powerful passages regarding the gospel In all of scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're looking today at how we have a marvelous gospel. We've seen that the gospel is glorious. We've seen that the gospel is miraculous. Today, we're going to see how the gospel is marvelous. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you love us, that you have given us Jesus Christ. And in his name, we pray this morning for your church to grow, to be changed, for sinners to turn to you, for our lives to reflect the wonderful glory of the good news of Jesus, that we have life after death, that we have hope in the middle of darkness, that even at our worst, Lord, you love us, you save us, you do the very things that we cannot. So we praise you for that. We ask now for you to bless your word for the good of your people and your glory. Amen. How many of you have ever seen uh, a Marvel movie? You know what I'm talking about? The Marvel? All right. So my guess is that if you've not seen it, you've heard of it. About probably, I think it's 2008 was when uh, one of the, like the, the first of the kind of this uh, new series of Marvel movies came out when uh, we were introduced to a man named Tony Stark, otherwise known as Iron Man. Iron Man. And from 2008 till this past year, we were introduced to this Marvel cinematic universe. And what's crazy about it is um, those movies made a lot of money. Um, I believe, you know, out of like the all-time highest grossing movies, you know, four or five of those movies are in that, that top ten, and then several others are out. It's like every single time they, they release one of these movies, it's just like it's worldwide almost pandemonium. And I think I know why. At least I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest a reason why. When you watch those movies, even though obviously they're fun, they're, they're, they're definitely you know, a very much a cinematic, it's like the movie theater movie. You know what I'm talking about? Like you got the action, the, the humor, it's like everything. There's something about the Marvel Universe that, that's inviting. There's something about witnessing people with otherworldly capabilities that's somewhat either enticing or even like intoxicating to a degree. I'm sure, and maybe you've not done this, uh, but I'm sure that people, when they watch those movies, they think and wonder, I wonder what it would be like to be Tony Stark. (laughs) 
I wonder what it would be like to be, you know, Captain America. Now, certainly young people do it, right? I mean, uh, you know, one of my daughters, I'll leave her nameless, she has Captain Marvel pajamas, okay? So she, she envisions herself as Captain Marvel. Another, uh, uh, another one of my daughters has uh, one of the, you know, you ever seen that Spider-Verse? You know, I'm talking about the cartoon Spider, uh, Spider-Man movie. She has the girl Spider-Man costume in that. Like, they, they see themselves in these characters because of their unique capabilities, the, the otherworldliness that's so intoxicating. And I think it's no wonder that this comic series is called Marvel because it's calling us to Marvel in these unique abilities in this other world that is beyond ours. When we think about the gospel... I believe we can think about the gospel in an otherworldly sense. And that the gospel is marvelous because it's allowing us, and maybe more specifically, it's creating us to be like God. Think about that. God has given us a good news that scripture tells us he is making us through his gospel, like Jesus. I mean, we get excited. You know, if I said, hey, you could have Spider-Man powers, or you have Spidey sense, <laughs> you, or you, if you, you could have, you know, the strength of Captain America. I mean, like, you get pretty excited about that, right? You'd want to go out there and flex those skills and, and, and explore what it would be like to, to, to swing from buildings or, or to, you know, be the strongest guy, you know, in the world. Like, we, we, would, we would find fascination in that. The gospel invites and creates in us the ability to be like Jesus. The gospel is marvelous. And when we explore Paul's letter to to the Corinthians, Paul wants us to see the marvelous nature of this gospel because the gospel, first of all, as we see here, gives us a purpose from God. The gospel gives us a purpose from God. In the start of chapter 3, Paul begins to defend his ministry to the Corinthians. Paul is someone who had such clarity in who he was and why he was on this earth. In some ways, I'm a little jealous of the clarity Paul had. You know, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus is like, I got a mission for you. And consequently, when Paul goes from city to city, starting these churches, ministering to these people, he's just confident in exactly what God wants from him. Now, not everyone was as confident in Paul's ministry as he was. So consequently, in, in several of his letters, at some point or another, he needs to defend what he's doing and why he's doing it. So we begin chapter 3 here with Paul essentially defending his apostolic ministry. And he is building to the Corinthians an argument that is essentially describing to them, I'm doing what I'm doing because God himself told me my confidence is not in my abilities. Paul says my confidence is not in who I was. My confidence is in Christ and specifically in the fruit of Christ's ministry in me. So in verse 4, he says, 
Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But notice he says, our sufficiency is from who? God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, Paul's confidence in the gospel, but particularly in this ministry, this purpose from the Lord, comes through a contractual promise. Now, I'm going to explain what I mean by that, but I need to explain a couple things first. When Paul begins this section here to the Corinthians, he, he draws on a certain level of confidence he possesses. But notice where his confidence is found. He says in verse 5, we have this confidence, not that we are sufficient or capable in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Now, that's a humble statement, isn't it? isn't it? This guy is responsible for, for starting and equipping multiple, multiple churches. Many believers have experienced his ministry, and Paul says, this, this isn't about me. Matter of fact, the ability to do these things is certainly not from me. And he uses this word sufficient, and we find it three times in this section. And when he's talking about sufficiency, he's really referring to like qualifications and capabilities. Like most of you, probably all of you, I would suggest, possess more skill in like home repairs than I do, right? Like I, I have literally no skill in this. But if there was a significant problem in your home, you would call for an expert, right? We have an expert in, in home repair in this room right now, and his name is Jason Smith. Jason, raise your hand. No, you're not yet. <laughs> Smart man. So Jason is a master plumber and uh, is very skilled in what he does. I have heard uh, and I have actually used Jason's skill. I've heard of many people and I have actually used Jason's skills in the past. Why? Because he knows what he's doing. There's a problem with uh, things in my home as it relates to the bathroom. I'm not trying to be crude. Uh, I'm going to ask Jason for help. Jason has a capability, a qualification, a sufficiency to address plumbing issues that I don't have. So if I were to ask Jason to come over, fix my bathroom, do it up, make it right, and then talk about to someone else how I fixed my bathroom. Like, man, look at my, look how great the toilet flushes now correctly. Everything's redone. It's nice. We call that what? Call that lying. It's hypocritical. Paul is identifying to these Corinthians the capabilities, the ministry that you are experienced is nothing from me. I don't have these expert qualifications. He says, my sufficiency, my capabilities are from who? From God. And notice specifically what God has made Paul and these other ministers capable of doing. He says, he has made us sufficient to be ministers of a what? of a new covenant. All right, now I want to take you on just a little journey here because um, this, is, this is, I think, a fairly easy passage to maybe it's at a surface level understand, but there's some stuff kind of below the surface that's really important for us to grasp. So the word covenant is a very biblically important 
but loaded word. We find, especially in the Old Testament, how God relates to his people is through a covenant. And, and some of these covenants are probably very familiar to you. God makes a covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant. You know what that covenant is? You ever seen a rainbow? It's a testimony of that covenant. It's God says, hey, I'm not going to, what I did there with the flood, I'm not going to do it again. And how do you know? Look at that rainbow in the sky. God makes a covenant with Abraham, one of the most important covenants of all of Scripture because it helps us understand how God is going to relate to and with his people. Remember when he tells Abraham, I've made you to be a blessing. You are to be a blessed people who bless people. You ever heard that before? Talked about it a lot last year. And he describes in Genesis 12 through, through 22 this interaction with Abraham where not only is Abraham's relationship to the Lord built upon a covenant, but we find that it's intended for all of Abraham's seed as well. The Davidic covenant in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 relates to what God promises to David and specifically the, the seed of David, what's going to come, the, 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 the blessings to God's people, the rule. So what we find in scripture is how God chooses to relate to his people are through these contractual promises. In Luke chapter 22, we're introduced to another covenant from God to his people. You know what that covenant is called? The new covenant. And this new covenant is a promise from God himself to his people about what life will now look like for those who are his people, for those who are his followers. That new covenant we find in Luke chapter 22 is completely centered on the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. Why is this so significant? When we look at the majority of the covenants that are in the Old Testament, like any contract, each party has an obligation. There's this obligation that God says, if you do this, then I will do this for you. We find that in the, specifically in the covenant that was given to Moses for the people of Israel. However, when we see the new covenant, all the work, all the expectations to ratify, to seal that contractual promise, guess where it falls upon? You? Me? No. Jesus. And this is something that completely shifts and completely changes the dynamic in the relationship of God to his people because Jesus has made a way built on a promise that now allows us to experience life abundantly and eternally. Now, I say all that because Paul here is speaking to a people who understand this dynamic, or at least when they hear the word covenant, they're, they're understanding what has happened, what has shaped the history of Israel, what has shaped the past of God's people. So Paul says that God has made us capable, made us qualified to be ministers or servants of a new covenant. And this is how he describes that covenant. This is not of the letter. This is not of the letter of the law, but of what? The spirit. And here's why. For the letter, what does the letter do? What does the letter of the law do? It kills. But what does the spirit do? He gives life. 
The gospel is marvelous because we're seeing that it gives us a purpose from God. Specifically, Paul says, we are servants. We are ministers of this new promise, of this hope from Jesus, not of a law that pointed out death, but of a spirit who gives life. And he's inviting us through the gospel to understand what God is doing in us and through us. He shows us this purpose in a contractual promise, but he further expands that this is just this is for no ordinary earthly purpose. It has a celestial or heavenly purpose as well. Let's continue reading in verse 7. Paul says, Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed its glory, it, it, it in glory. All right, another little, another little go on another journey again. Exodus 34. Moses goes up to the mountain. How many of you have ever, I don't know why they play it at Easter time, but how many of you have ever seen that old Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, you know what I'm talking about? All right, so do you remember the point, I think it's hilarious, remember the point in that movie where, where he goes up and he receives the Ten Commandments? And remember what he looks like when he comes down? <laughs> like, it's like they like took a hair dryer and like blew out his hair and, and made his face really white. They're trying, to, they're trying to depict what Paul is referring to here, right? I don't think that's quite 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 what he looked like but let's just let's just pretend here for a minute Paul says now if the ministry of death now he's using some very powerful and strong language here so I'm gonna do my best to explain what he's saying he says if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory when you when we interact with the Old Testament, Paul, Paul is not calling the law, Paul is not looking at the law as a bad thing. Like he's not, like it's not that he's looking at that law from God, the thing that David said he would delight in and meditate in. He's not looking at this, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament as like this awful thing. But when he's comparing what the law was to this new covenant in Jesus, He's wanting us to understand the power that is involved in this gospel, the marvelous nature of it. He says, if the law of God, when Moses saw that law, if it was so powerful that it literally changed his being so much that the people of Israel couldn't look at him, if the law was that powerful, how much more powerful is the gospel of Jesus, which doesn't lead to death, but leads to what? Life. He says, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? It says, for there, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed in, it, in its glory. He said, if Moses, in receiving the letter, the law from God that outlined and pointed out the sin of man and showed the ultimate condemnation, if that was glorious, 
Think about how much more the glorious nature of the gospel is that shows us life in Jesus. The very thing, the marvelous nature of the gospel is that it shows us and reveals to us that we can be like God. Look what it says here in verse 10 as it continues. He says, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that what is permanent have glory. You know, all we know in terms of glory is a fading glory. Like, think about it. How many of you have ever bought a new car before, like a brand new car? And as soon as you drive off that lot, it's like, what? It's, it's lost a couple thousand dollars of value, right? As soon as you go down the street, you know, that, that first little stone nicks the, the, the door, the, or someone, you know, opens their car and bumps it and scrapes the paint. Like, it's a fading, um, some of you are like, oh, you know, you're feeling sick about it. Think about technology. You know, man, Apple's killing us. You know, they're coming out with new iPhones after new iPhones. And it's like, next thing you know, it's like technology is better. And what you had last month is already dated. Think about our bodies. Now, I won't go into this in detail, but man, we're getting old. <laughs> Feeling it. We're constantly, we're constantly fading and deteriorating. The glory we once had in our youth, the glory of the new car, the glory of the new iPhone, guess what? It's fading. However, Paul says that we have a glory in the gospel that is permanent. And I think this is interesting because often when we talk about purpose from God as it relates to the gospel, we often think about that purpose in an earthly sense or an earthly confines. The gospel that's been given to us, this new covenant in Jesus, has a heavenly purpose in that it has been given to us to change us forever. Like often we look at the gospel and I've said this frequently, but I want just to, to reiterate, we look at the good news of Jesus, this new covenant, as something that is merely likened to a ticket. Like, that's what I need when I get to heaven. But Paul is demonstrating this gospel, this good news, is what is transforming us every day. What is making us like Jesus. What is bringing us, look right here, what is bringing us to a greater glory of a greater likeness to Jesus. He says, this is what we have in the gospel. So it's not something we put on a shelf and wait till we see God and say, hey, here's my ticket. No, it's something that we bring before us each day and remind ourselves that the thing that was in our past was death dealing, but now we have a life-giving good news that's bound in Jesus. It's a permanent experience. It's a permanent transformation. It's a purpose that's marvelous because it is making us to be like him. Paul outlines a second reason why this gospel is marvelous. I think this is just so wonderful that the gospel offers us access to God. The gospel is marvelous. Yes, it gives us a purpose, which is Christ-likeness, a greater glory, but it also gives us access to God. 
And it gives us access to God by way of Jesus. Paul says in verse 12, since we have such a hope, such a hope that we have a promise, a guarantee of the gospel from God. What does he say? Because we have this hope, what are we? We're bold. He says, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face. And notice why he puts a veil over that glory so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. You see, it's interesting when I was studying and and, and reading, like, why did Moses put this veil on his face? It wasn't because he was trying to hide a secret from the Israelites. It was that the glory of beholding the law from God was so powerful and changed him so much that if the Israelites were to gaze on that glory, it was, in essence, a a death-dealing blow to them. You think about where Moses asked to see God, and what does God tell him? You can't. If you see me in my glory, what will happen to you? You'll die. So Moses, when he saw the glory of the Lord in his word, he has to hide it. He has to veil it because that people, they're not ready for it. They can't, if if you will, they can't handle it. But because of Jesus, we are able today to experience the glory from the Lord. It says in verse 14, these Israelites, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, notice that same veil remains what? Unlifted. Because only through Christ it is taken away. When you consider what what Paul was saying here, I want you to consider the weight of this. Paul is describing to us that our ability to access, to know God, can come by nothing we can do. In essence, it is veiled. There is nothing we can do to, to pull back that curtain and see God. Even all the works... All the works from the Israelites, there was nothing they could do that could open, that could remove that veil so that they could see God. It was always mediated to them. It was always mediated. There was that special place where God's presence was, and no one could enter it except the the holiest of holies. But here we have Christ in the new covenant through his broken body, through his shed blood, offering us access to God. You know what Hebrews says? We can come boldly before this God. And you know why we can come boldly? Because Christ has taken that veil away. And when we turn to him from our sins, through an act of repentance, we have access to God. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, yes, to this day, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, what is the promise that Moses gives? What happens? The veil is removed. Think about the glory of this. We have an opportunity through Christ 
and responding to what Christ has done by turning away from our sins and turning to him to have access to God. One of my favorite things, like I love, you know, they do documentaries on like a day in the life and they follow around, you know, like a, you know, a famous person or a celebrity or someone successful. This past week, when uh, I'm sure many of you have heard Kobe Bryant, the, the, the famous and successful NBA player, uh, tragically died in a, in, a, in a helicopter crash. You know, social media, but just, you know, sports in general have, has been inundated with, with, with you know, footage and, and video from his life. And it's, it's fascinating to get that, like, you know, inner access, that, like, exclusive footage of, 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 of this man and his work ethic and his drive. And it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, to get that behind-the-scenes look, that, that exclusive access. The gospel, the, the good news that Jesus Christ took on the form of a man, died on a cross, gives us access to God himself. It's not like a one-time, 24-hour deal. We are talking about through Jesus Christ, we get to be with and like God forever. Are you kidding me? Like, this is unbelievable, and it's not like, it's not like these incredible hard stipulations. That law that existed, all of those, I think it's over 700 commands, Jesus fulfilled them. And you know what he calls us to do? To turn, to literally turn away from and to him. And that person who turns to the Lord, what does he have access to? God forever. Like, this is marvelous, isn't it? We're talking about a promise from God that's been sealed in the blood of his son that gives us, you and me, we're not sufficient for that. We're not capable to earn that. But it offers us Christ, God, likeness forever. And this, this access to God that's by way of Jesus, by an act of repentance, the, the, the beauty of this, it's also through the ministry of the Spirit. And why is that so significant? Let me explain why by, by, by continuing reading here, starting in verse 17. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit. And notice what he says here, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And this is what freedom he's referring to. It's the freedom to see God unveiled. It's a freedom to access God directly. It's a freedom to enjoy the new covenant, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And Paul says, and we all, with what? Unveiled face. Those who have turned to the Lord, who have access to God, we all beholding the glory of the Lord. When we're looking and seeing that gospel, the glory of the Lord, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, is found in the face of Jesus. When we behold the gospel, when we remember the good news of Jesus, what does that do? It transforms us into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is why life can be a struggle. 
often we think, man, I trust in God, everything should be good. But it, no, it's, stay, it's gradual, it's, it's progressive, it's, it's every day. And this is why going back to the gospel, this is why every day we need to behold that gospel. We need to look once again into the beautiful face of Jesus and remind ourselves of his love, remind ourselves of his purposes, remind ourselves of his work on the cross, how he fulfilled the demands of God. And when we behold that glorious face of Jesus, when we consider that wonderful gospel, guess what it does? It changes us. It makes us like Jesus. Not all at one time. <laughs> Not just with one dose. <laughs> but to every day, beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, I'll be honest, when I, when I consider that, I feel a little bit of weightiness, like, well, okay, can I do that? Like, can I wake up and behold the glory of God? Is this something that I can do each day? Is this something that I want to do each day? Is this something that, you know, is possible? But notice where Paul leaves us. That even the work, and I'm using that word intentionally, even the work of beholding, where does that come from? What is, what is, how does he end here in verse 18? For this comes from who? The Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, why is that such a significant encouragement? Because if you are in Christ, if you are his Scripture says that you have his spirit. And because you have the spirit of Jesus Christ, he is working in you to do and to will his good pleasure. Meaning that there is a force, if you will, within you, a person residing within you who is fighting for you, who is wanting you to be more like him. And even when you don't feel like it, even though you don't want to do it, you have the Spirit of God working in you. This ministry of beholding and changing, it's not, it's not our ability to do. The sufficiency, the capabilities we have, they are from God. And that means positionally, but also means practically. So the beauty of this passage here is that when we understand that the gospel is marvelous because it gives us a purpose from God, but also gives us access to God, we know that we're covered now and forever. You know, I think about the time, the conversation, the money I've spent on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> you know, if you have Disney Plus, you know, all those movies are now available to you, or almost all of them, whatever. And we're so, like, we're, we, you know, we're so pumped about that other world, that, that, that world that's like ours, but, but it's not. And, and, and we're so fascinated by those heroes, by, by their capabilities. What if... What if we, and, and again, understand what I mean by this. What if we became that fascinated, that engaged with the glory of God's gospel? Like, what if, what if we started beholding 
and seen the gospel with the same energy, the same passion as we did for Avengers Endgame. You know, some of you stayed up, went to like the premiere showing. Some of you, you know, like you, you got like all the, the, you know, all the movies. Like we get so passionate about things that are fading, don't we? But yet we have been reminded here today that we've been given a gospel that's truly marvelous. Something that when we start to behold and to remind ourselves and to delight in, we are literally being transformed into the image of God. Not Spider-Man, not the Incredible Hulk, but Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And those dudes, they save a fake world, don't they? <laughs> kind of. There's always something going on there. There's always another bad guy that then, you know, carnage that happens. But think about this. We have a Savior who's redeeming this world. And you know how he's chosen to do that? By taking people like you and like me and making us like him. So we, we get excited about Spider-Man swinging in, saving somebody. Think about what can happen when we tell someone, Jesus loves you, and he died for you, and can save you. That's life-changing, and that is truly marvelous.